0: war and peace first epilogue chapter three read for dot org by anna simon the fundamental and essential significance of the european events of the beginning of the nineteenth century lies in the movement of the mass of the european peoples from west to east and afterwards from east to west the commencement of that movement was the movement from west to east for the peoples of the west to be able to make their warlike movement to moscow it was necessary one that they should form themselves into a military group of a size able to endure a collision with the warlike military group of the east two that they should abandon all established traditions and customs and three that during their military movement they should have at their head a man who could justify to himself and to them the deceptions robberies and murders which would have to be committed during that movement and beginning with the french revolution the old inadequately large group was destroyed as well as the old habits and traditions and step by step a group was formed of larger dimensions with new customs and traditions and a man was produced who would stand at the head of the coming movement and bear the responsibility for all that had to be done a man without convictions without habits without traditions without a name and not even a frenchman emerges by what seems the strangest chances From among all the seething french parties and without joining any one of them is borne forward to a prominent position the ignorance of his colleagues the weakness and insignificance of his opponents the frankness of his falsehoods and the dazzling and self-confident limitations of this man raise him to the head of the army the brilliant qualities of the soldiers of the army sent to italy his opponents reluctance to fight and his own childish audacity and self-confidence secure him military fame. Innumerable so-called chances accompany him everywhere. The disfavor into which he falls with the rulers of France turns to his advantage. His attempts to avoid his predestined path are unsuccessful. He is not received into the Russian service, and the appointment he seeks in Turkey comes to nothing. During the war in Italy he is several times on the verge of destruction, and each time is saved in an unexpected manner. Owing to various diplomatic considerations, the Russian armies, just those which might have destroyed his prestige, do not appear upon the scene till he is no longer there. On his return from Italy, he finds the government in Paris in a process of dissolution in which all those who are in it are inevitably wiped out and destroyed, and by chance an escape from this dangerous position presents itself in the form of an aimless and senseless expedition to Africa. Again, so-called chance accompanies him. Impregnable Malta surrenders without a shot. His most reckless schemes are crowned with success. The enemy's fleet, which subsequently did not let a single boat pass, allows his entire army to elude it. In Africa, a whole series of outrages are committed against the almost unarmed inhabitants, and the men who commit these crimes, especially their leader, assure themselves that this is admirable. This is glory, it resembles Caesar and Alexander the Great, and is therefore good. This ideal of glory and grandeur, which consists not merely in considering nothing wrong that one does, but in priding oneself on every crime one commits, ascribing to it an incomprehensible supernatural significance, that ideal, destined to guide this man and his associates, had scope for its development in Africa. Whatever he does, succeeds the plague does not touch him the cruelty of murdering prisoners is not imputed to him as a fault his childishly rash uncalled-for and ignoble departure from africa leaving his comrades in distress is set down to his credit and again the enemy's fleet twice lets him slip past when intoxicated by the crimes he has committed so successfully he reaches paris the dissolution of the republican government which a year earlier might have ruined him has reached its extreme limit, and his presence there now as a newcomer free from party entanglements can only serve to exalt him. And though he himself has no plan, he is quite ready for his new role. He had no plan, he was afraid of everything, but the party snatched at him and demanded his participation. He alone, with his ideal of glory and grandeur developed in Italy and Egypt, his insane self adulation, his boldness in crime and frankness in lying, he alone could justify what had to be done. He is needed for the place that awaits him, and so, almost apart from his will and despite his indecision, his lack of a plan, and all his mistakes, he is drawn into a conspiracy that aims at seizing power, and the conspiracy is crowned with success. He is pushed into a meeting of the legislature. In alarm, he wishes to flee, considering himself lost. He pretends to fall into a swoon and says senseless things that should have ruined him. But the once proud and shrewd rulers of France, feeling that their part is played out, are even more bewildered than he and do not say the words they should have said to destroy him and retain their power. Chance, millions of chances, give him power, and all men, as if by agreement, cooperate to confirm that power. Chance forms the characters of the rulers of France who submit to him chance forms the character of paul i of russia who recognizes his government chance contrives a plot against him which not only fails to harm him but confirms his power chance puts the duc d'engen in his hands and unexpectedly causes him to kill him thereby convincing the mob more forcibly than in any other way that he had the right since he had the might chance contrives that though he directs all his efforts to prepare an expedition against england which would inevitably have ruined him he never carries out that intention but unexpectedly falls upon mack and the austrians who surrender without a battle chance and genius give him the victory at austerlitz and by chance all men not only the french but all europe except england which does not take part in the events about to happen despite their former horror and detestation of his crimes now recognize his authority the title he has given himself in his ideal of grandeur and glory which seems excellent and reasonable to them all. As of measuring themselves and preparing for the coming movement, the Western forces pushed towards the East several times in 1805, 1806, 1807 and 1809, gaining strength and growing. In 1811 the group of people that had formed in France unites into one group with the peoples of Central Europe, The strength of the justification of the man who stands at the head of the movement grows with the increased size of the group. During the ten-year preparatory period this man had formed relations with all the crowned heads of Europe. The discredited rulers of the world can oppose no reasonable ideal to the insensate Napoleonic ideal of glory and grandeur. One after another they hasten to display their insignificance before him. The King of Prussia sends his wife to seek the great man's mercy. The Emperor of Austria considers it a favour that this man receives a daughter of the Caesars into his bed. The Pope, the guardian of all that the nations hold sacred, utilizes religion for the aggrandizement of the great man. It is not Napoleon who prepares himself for the accomplishment of his role, so much as all those round him who prepare him to take on himself the whole responsibility for what is happening and has to happen there is no step, no crime or petty fraud he commits which in the mouths of those around him is not at once represented as a great deed. The most suitable fete the Germans can devise for him is a celebration of Gina and Auerstadt. Not only is he great, but so are his ancestors, his brothers, his stepsons and his brothers-in-law. Everything is done to deprive him of the remains of his reason and to prepare him for his terrible part, and when he is ready... So too are the forces. The invasion pushes eastward and reaches its final goal, Moscow. That city is taken. The Russian army suffers heavier losses than the opposing armies had suffered in the former war from Austerlitz to Wagram. But suddenly, instead of those chances and that genius which hitherto had so consistently led him by an uninterrupted series of successes to the predestined goal, an innumerable sequence of inverse chances occur, from the cold in his head at Borodino to the sparks which set Moscow on fire and the frosts, and instead of genius, stupidity and immeasurable baseness become evident. The invaders flee, turn back, flee again, and all the chances are now not for Napoleon but always against him. A counter-movement is then accomplished from east to west with a remarkable resemblance to the preceding movement from west to east. Attempted drives from east to west, similar to the contrary movements of 1805, 1807 and 1809, precede the great westward movement. There is the same coalescence into a group of enormous dimensions, the same adhesion of the people of the Central Europe to the movement, the same hesitation midway and the same increasing rapidity as the goal is approached. Paris, the ultimate goal, is reached. The Napoleonic government and army are destroyed. Napoleon himself is no longer of any account. All his actions are evidently pitiful and mean. But again an inexplicable chance occurs. The Allies detest Napoleon, whom they regard as the cause of their sufferings. Deprived of power and authority, his crimes and his craft exposed, he should have appeared to them what he appeared ten years previously, and one year later, an outlawed brigand, but by some strange chance no one perceives this. His part is not yet ended. The man who ten years before and a year later was considered an outlawed brigand is sent to an island two days' sail from France, which for some reason is presented to him as his dominion, and guards are given to him, and millions of money are paid him. End of chapter 3 This recording is in the public domain.